Hey, Andrew, did you hear that Gaston won a major award? No way. Yeah, dude, the Nobel Prize. Hello, and welcome to Pints and Princesses. Welcome back to Pints and Princesses. This is part two of our episode on Beauty and the Beast. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, we really recommend you do that. We're picking up right in the middle of the conversation. I might have known that, that as Philippe rides up, it's kind of like a lassie moment. It's like, what's wrong, boy? What's yeah. wrong? <laughs> Timmy fell on a well? Yeah, <laughs> that, and that's exactly right. Like, she has a, it, and, it, and it does. It kind of, once again, like, she has full expectation that Philippe can tell her exactly where her father is, which I'm not a horse owner, but that's not an expectation that I would have. <laughs> <laughs> like if I watched one of my kids run off with a goat and the goat came back, I wouldn't say like, Dixie, where's Paul? It's like, not a realistic expectation, man. She hops on Philippe and Philippe takes her to... to yeah, takes her straight there. It, which is weird because Philippe didn't see him go into the gate. Was he like following his nose? You know, people who are into horses, like they say that, and I, you know, I'm not one of these people, so I don't know. They say horses are very intelligent. You know, um, well, in, in Cowboy Sam books, they use horses to find water. You know, they can kind of like, they can smell it on the wind or the whatever. the Ouija sticks or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> it's called dousing, okay? <laughs> oh, it's a Ouija board. And it's board. a highly reputable <laughs> pa- background, but it's not what cowboys do. <laughs> right, cowboys use horses. <clears throat> Cowboy Sam told me so. Blackie's very good at finding water for the cows. But anyways, yeah, right, she gets on Philippe, dude, which I, I love the juxtaposition of when you see Belle on Philippe's back, like, that horse is huge. And if you've ever been in the, in the presence of a draft horse, like, buddy, that's real. Like, these are big, strong animals. You know what I mean? Like, there's a big difference between, you know, the horses and ponies that you see riding around at shows and, you know, like a Budweiser Clydesdale. That's going to pull your plow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big animal. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so cool to me that the scene as she approaches the gate, like, she looks so tiny. We also get this picture of our traditional Disney heroine that has harmony with nature, right? Like, she's, mm. she has this harmony with Philippe. You know, she's comfortable with him. She trusts him. He understands her. She right. understands him. Yeah, exactly. She it, just has it, to ask him, and right. he doesn't. In, in a way that Maurice doesn't. <clears throat> Not that Maurice is evil, but he doesn't have the same harmony with Philippe. Right, but we watch, right? Like, he he and Philippe are not on the same page and clearly leads to problems for him, whereas Philippe can take Belle uh, yeah, right to where she needs to go. Mm-hmm. And what does she find? Oh. <laughs> the hat. The hat. Just inside the gate. It's the clear mm-hmm. sign that she's in the right place. Dude, in those, yeah, I don't know. Once again, in this scene, you you do get a little shot of how ridiculously tall these gates are. They're, I mean, Philippe is really big. These gates are way bigger. This is a huge castle, and we keep getting <laughs> just little glimpses of it, yeah. right? And it, it'll come into play in the, the penultimate scene, mm. but it's a big castle. Yeah, yeah it's so cool. Right. Even the inside is huge, and which will, I mean, there's something I want to call out when we get here. But <laughs> So she goes inside, 
Right. She's looking for her father. She's kind of wandering around. And Chip sees her. And he goes into the kitchen. And, and you know, Mrs. Potts says, get into the tub. Right? <laughs> There's a girl in the castle. I don't want to hear these fanciful stories you're telling. <laughs> get in the tub. Which, who hasn't done that to a kid before? <laughs> <laughs> but then the feather duster, who is unnamed, just called the feather duster in the credits. Yeah. Uh, says, there is a girl in the castle. See, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then Lumaire and Cogsworth see her, and uh, and they kind of, you know, lead her up to the prison tower. Right, they kind of make noises, mm-hmm. and then, you know, Lumiere obviously can be this, like, light in the distance mm-hmm. that implies somebody's there. Yeah, and she's like, hello? I thought I heard somebody. She picks up the candlestick, Lumiere, right. and, and uses that to find her way up the tower. Takes her straight to Maurice. Mm-hmm. Oh, Father, your hands are ice cold. <laughs> well, what are you doing here? You must leave immediately. Yeah, right. Which, <clears throat> it's too late. Yeah. The beast has arrived. <sighs> Dude. Once, once again, he's so physically stunning. Yeah. You know, Such a physical presence. And like this dance he does with the shadows, where you know he's like talking to her... And, you know, and Belle interacts with it so well, you know? Like, she she picks up on, like, why is this guy dancing around in the shadows, mm-hmm. you know? like, And, yeah, she says, I'll take his place, right? But then, you know, the Beast just can't imagine why Belle would sacrifice herself for her father. Mm-hmm. Like, it just is in such contrast with his worldview. That's it's right. Like, why would you do that? You would take your place? Yeah, and it's the first crack you see in this mm-hmm. facade of like this like angry, aggressive, violent mm-hmm. beast. It's the first time you see like, oh wait a second, you know what I mean? Like there's somebody in there, and and he says, but you must promise to stay here forever. Before she agrees, the, you know, Belle, we see her wisdom yet again. She says, step into the light, which she does that first when she offers herself up. It's a, it's a nice little compositional thing that she, like, takes this step mm-hmm. into whatever, you know, whatever this mm-hmm. overheld headlight source, I guess, you know, a moon or something like that, right? Yeah, she sort of steps into the light and offers herself, and then she says, you need to step into the light mm-hmm. so they can face each other. And, of course, she she gasps. She's very surprised at, at his appearance. But then... And it's such a good shot. Right. But then she just accepts it says, yes. Dude, and Beast is just that quick, right? Like, done. And he goes and grabs Maurice, drags him out, throws him away. It's like, no opportunities to change your mind. No, no take backs. Guessing. <laughs> That's right. It's like, you're the idiot who made the agreement. Now you're going to stick to it. Tag, you're right. No tag backs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And, of course, she is just destroyed by this. You didn't even let me say goodbye. And, right. again, like this another chink in that armor. He's like, oh. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, that's that's right. Like, that's a thing people would do. Like, people care about their family. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then right. uh, I love Lumiere. Like, he's just, he's always just kind of like feeding little <laughs> little earworms, right? He, he knows that he can't tell the beast to do anything, right? <laughs> like, if you say it outright, it won't work. But you can make suggestions. Well, I mean, well, first they do try to... He's like, hey, do you, you think she might be the, the girl? Have you considered? <laughs> of course <laughs> I've considered it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
And then it's like, <laughs> maybe I'm going to offer her a more comfortable room. <laughs> right. Which, like, he doesn't respond to, but he's like, oh, yeah, hey, good idea there, Lumiere. <laughs> Which, you know, you really do have to wonder, like, how how would things have played out? You know, like, is is there enough virtue in Lumiere and Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts to have influenced this young prince without, you know, the intervention of the Enchantress? It could be maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if he never has his worldview challenged, right, and never has his, you know, sort of internal ugliness revealed to the world, maybe he wouldn't ever have, you know, considered to listen to them. Maybe he would have dismissed them. Whereas now... When he's in a, in a condition of strife and struggle mm-hmm. and, you know, like, facing the realities of his own internals. But so are they. And it's his fault that they are also suffering. But none of them seem to blame him. You don't see any animosity towards the master of the castle. That's an interesting point. That's true. They're all still, like, totally loyal to him. And trying to help him win. Which, you know... Which means they win. So they're not <laughs> entirely altruistic. <laughs> Even though I think they should be portrayed as mostly being virtuous. You know, it's like, you know, we all want the win, 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 right? I win, you win, everybody wins. Yes. <laughs> I accept your terms. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, we get this little picture of Lumiere, like, you know, nudging the beast mm-hmm. to, like, hey, maybe... Right. So then he says... Come with me to your room. Oh, but I thought, do you want to stay in the tower? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, he still like he still can't transition into, you know, like, even moderately cordial for more than one sentence. Right? Like, yeah, it's just... So they're walking through the castle, and again, Lumiere is like, he's kind of like feeding them little, little tidbits. Talk to her. Talk to her. you got to say something. And so he's just trying to make some, some small talk, like, the castle's your home now, the servants will see all your needs... You know, invite her to dinner. <clears throat> invite her to don't, dinner. Don't go to the West Wing. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's in the West Wing? <laughs> it is forbidden! <laughs> Dude, and it's so... I Like, he's, he's so good at, like, the like the snap change. Yeah. And then, hey, invite her to dinner. And then, like, he can't. He cannot. He's just, you will join me for dinner. It's not a request! <laughs> He's, yeah, exactly, right? Like, the idea that he would submit his will to her will is just absurd, yeah. right? But yeah. that's why she's going to transform him. Yeah, they they do such a good job building the characters. I mean, we already talked about how they developed Belle. They, they're developing the beast just beautifully and into a beast, right? <laughs> like, obviously, right now, he's the bad guy. Right, he is the antagonist. He, uh, Gaston is also an antagonist, but at this point, conflict is present because of the beast. He's definitely not a good guy. Yeah, I agree. So now the enchanted carriage walking thing takes Maurice back to the village, and <clears throat> now we cut back yes, to right. the tavern. The tavern. Oh. What a beautiful... <laughs> oh, I love it. It might be the best scene in the movie. I mean... It, I mean, like, the entire scene-wise, it very well might be. It, it's a great song. There's so many great songs, I can't say it's the best song. But, it's like... It's the most lyrically clever. There's no doubt is, about it that. It is, and they incorporate so much physical humor into it. Just, like, 
if you add up, if, like, you give everything a score, yes, I agree. The scene, like, would be very, very competitive. It's for the so top. dominant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the first thing to point out <laughs> is this amazing throne that they have <laughs> right. for Gaston sitting in the tavern. And they move it all the time, right? <laughs> they, they're, they're, like, moving it all over the place. Yeah, and, like, right. spinning it around. And spinning it around. It's like it weighs three pounds. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, and yeah, of course he's got all the hunting trophies up on the wall, and, and he's, what does he say? Uh, you know, rejected, publicly humiliated. Why it's more than I can bear. More beer? What for? Nothing helps. Boy, it disturbs me to see you, Gaston. You got to pull yourself together. <laughs> Looking so down in the dumps, man. We like we could just do this whole song. It'd be great. I, I mean, <laughs> dude, seriously, I can quote almost every line because every line is good. Uh, every line is good. It, but what what's so striking to me is like it works to like cheer him up. But it's not flattering, <laughs> right? They're like making fun of him in at least half the lyrics. Nobody... In a wrestling match, nobody bites like <laughs> right. Gaston. Nobody matches wits like Gaston, and, <laughs> and he slaps the chest. He's losing the chess game. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's it. But you know what I mean? Like that's it. Like he's in this environment of like totally supporting. Yeah. Oh, man, what an amazing song. Well, and that's it, right? Like, you say that they're not flattering him, but, like, somehow they're all enthusiastic about it. I use antlers in all of my decorating. That's right. Uh, when I was a lad, I ate four dozen eggs every morning to help me get large. Dude, my kids quote this all the time. I bet, I bet once a month one of my kids uh, says, Dad, you don't eat five dozen eggs, do you? <laughs> well, I'm not roughly the size of a barge, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> Actually, don't say that. I, I say like, well, no, probably not. But I am roughly the size of a barge. <laughs> uh, it's just, I agree. This is this is my favorite scene. Well, and it does, you know, it does such a good job of like painting this like hyper masculine picture of Gaston and this song is actually what what first pointed out to me particularly and every last inch of me's covered with hair and he I mean like and dude yeah. that's some James Bond chest hair right there <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean like the old James Bond back before they shaved all these boys you know what I mean it's like, like Austin Powers <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. or maybe Sean Connery's yeah. but, but yes right and Man, like, I think, I think, and I don't know if they did it on purpose, it's it's really interesting to me to compare, to see the ways that Gaston and the Beast are the same. Like, that they're, like, these little, like, coupled, they have so many things in similar, and then these little counterpoints that distinguish them between the two. Hmm. You know? So, are you saying that without intervention from the Enchantress... The beast would turn out like Gaston. I mean, I think it's a reasonable speculation to think about as you're watching this movie. It's like, well, I mean, like, the townspeople worship Gaston like a prince. He's got a throne, for goodness sake. He has everything his heart could desire. 
But he's spoiled. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, exactly. It's like you look at the way that Gaston, it's like, yeah, man, like this guy's a mm. counterpoint. He, yeah, I think he is. I think he's showing what the outcome of a non-intervened prince could have been. You know, like this this totally self-absorbed, unaware, mm. you know, unconditionally worshipped. And, and I mean, you know, like you can't argue, right? Like he is, he's. He's, he looks like a Greek god. Perfect, a pure paragon. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a he's a pure paragon. As right? a specimen, as, as a specimen, I, uh, yes, I'm intimidating. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, uh, exactly. They admire. He's especially good at expectorating. <laughs> Ten points for Gaston. Dude, now this... this... <laughs> no one has a cleft in their chin like Gaston. That's true. Which, if I didn't have a huge beard, I'd just like to say, I also have a majestic cleft in my chin. Just just for all you viewers out there. <laughs> all viewers. <laughs> <laughs> it's an audible platform, my friend. <clears throat> they which can is why, see me in their mind. Which is why I've always been told I have a face for radio. <laughs> Quite so. So, I will point second. out... This, there are a few different places where in the soundtrack, there's mm. this, this particular song has discrepancies, mm. you know? It's, it's not the only one, and I'll bring up the next one when we get to it. Okay, excellent. So, but in this one, like, <laughs> in the soundtrack, he <clears throat> says, Tui! <laughs> As opposed to, like, you know, the sound effects, like, you know, like this, like, bullet-sounding ricochet mm-hmm. of his spit. And then... There's the conclusion. Which is just weird. Which is just, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm so glad that they cut it in the actual movie. It was, like, perfect decision. But then for some reason they put it on the soundtrack where, like, LeFou can't figure out how to spell Gaston. He's like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. It's totally not in the movie, but he's like, yeah. G-A-S-T-E-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-E-G-A-S-T-
You knew he was crazy before, and now he just like comes and gets like, oh yeah, he's crazy ha- old Maurice. He's having a fit. <laughs> sure, it's good for a laugh. <laughs> Calm down, old man. Of course, we'll help you out. You will? Thank you, thank you. And they help him right out into yeah. the snow. Pitch him out in the snow, man. Crazy old Maurice. He's always good for a laugh. Crazy old Maurice. Hmm. LeFou, I'm afraid I've been thinking. A dangerous pastime? I know. <laughs> Dude, me and Beth quote that line <laughs> at least once a week. <laughs> Be like, you know, I've been thinking. It's like, a dangerous pastime. <laughs> so, you know, as I was playing the soundtrack over and over, you know, I would spit out a uh, uh, just a, a one-liner from the Gaston song, right? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> And I'd say something like, I'm especially good at expectorating. <laughs> and Leo would be like, my, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a good wife. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But and I think this is the best verse of it, right? Like, nobody plots like Gaston. Persecutes harmless crackpots like Gaston. <laughs> it's just amazing. Like, I mean, they don't even care if he's bad. He's <laughs> that's Gaston. That's the point. That's right. Like, yeah, of course he's going to persecute Maurice, right? Like, that's Maurice's role in the world <laughs> is to be persecuted by, you know, the big one named Gaston. Right. Soon his wedding will celebrate him. Right. Like, they all know what the goal is. They're all supportive of the goal. Yeah. It's groupthink, man. It's dangerous. Yeah. It's wild. Scums. Scums. <laughs> So, now we cut back to Bell. Now that Gaston has his plan all worked out, he's he's like, "Boom, baby, got it." Now we cut back to Bell, who gets to meet the little wardrobe. <laughs> little. Little is not a word I would use to describe the wardrobe. Many things, but not little. What's interesting to me is like, she kind of like comes out real large, right in the scene, but then she's almost absent from the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's an interesting point. She does play like, well, it's kind of like the dog right. in some ways. Like it, for a moment, very prominent, very key. But yeah, you're right. Just like she shows up in the fight scene at the end, right? It, but doesn't even. I don't even think she has dialogue then. Right. She just dresses a man in a dress. <laughs> I mean, barely a dress and a wig, a tutu, <laughs> and a tube top, and a wig. <clears throat> Which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. What you can't hear is the awkward looks that we're kind of giving each other. Anyways, right. So, yeah, it's a really interesting... um... Gosh. How many have we had? Well, it's at least three. And I pre-gamed one. Right. So now we get this interesting little interaction where we see Belle dealing with... Which, you know, in the first... In the first moments of Belle being in the castle... There's almost, right, she has no interactions with anybody before the Beast. You know, in contrast to Maurice, who, like, primarily Mm. interacts with Lumiere and Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts and Chip and the dog, and then the Beast comes in at the end. Mm. Belle is totally concealed from them. This is her first interaction with, and, I mean, she makes it very clear, like, what the heck is this wardrobe (laughs) doing talking to me? Yeah, why is it talking (laughs) to me? It's hard to believe. And then... (laughs) She flops out on the bed, which would be terrifying because it really is an enormous wardrobe. Yeah. But the bed's not enchanted. 
You know, it's an interesting point which things turn out to be enchanted mm-hmm. and which don't. Hmm. I well, ha- I mean, I guess they get transformed into their counterparts, right? So Mrs. Potts was the cook, became the teapot. Cogsworth she was... She wasn't the cook. She was the cook. Then who's the stove? The chef. It's a big castle. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. But she clearly is the cook. I thought she was a nanny. That seems more like a... According to my research, she was the cook. Very well. Um, Cogsworth. He was the major domo. He's the clock, right? He's got to keep everything running in the entire house. Schedule. <laughs> Very British of you. <laughs> um, Lumiere. Um, he's the maitre d or valet de chambre, right? I don't know how that relates to a candlestick. I don't either. But him being on fire is definitely <laughs> right. This guy's got some heat about right. him. The maid became the feather duster. Boom. Right? So, you know, the wardrobe was likely a, a, a valet of some kind or, or, you know, somebody that would help the lady dress. So who would become a, a bed? Nobody you would keep in a respectable castle, that's for sure. What about the kid who t- emptied the bedpans? Obviously, he became Chip. <laughs> <laughs> it's very generous of you. <laughs> He's happy to sleep in the cabinet. <laughs> My life is so much better now. Please don't marry the girl. <laughs> I want to stay here. <laughs> this used to be a happy house. <laughs> Can you imagine having that job? You know, you know, like, so, you know, obligatory reference to our five a.m. runs right here. Jake and I, we we meet at five a.m. to run most days, and uh, occasionally, at the park where we meet, there will be well, I guess once a week, occasionally, approximately, the uh, the porta potty. Uh, truck comes up to pump the porta potties. We get to witness the poop pumper. Mm-hmm. It's quite quite a spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, a few times I have opined that I'm glad I do not have that profession. But that w- that profession would be infinitely better than being the, the yeah kid. right. Like <laughs> that guy just goes and drops a tube into the porta potty. Right. He- you don't have to carry it outside. <laughs> Down the, all those stairs? What if and you trip? Don't spill it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a... Uh, yeah. Whew. Boy. Thank God for indoor plumbing. Scumps. Scumps. So, movie. There's definitely a movie in here. This is a great scene with the beast pacing back and forth in front of the fireplace. Dude. That is a huge fireplace. Like most impressive, yeah. <laughs> right. You could you could burn an entire tree <laughs> in that fireplace at the same time. Yeah, and he looks. He's such. It's such an interesting, like, movement towards transition of him. He's still beastly because he's walking on all fours. But remember, he has the lower body of a wolf, right? So his knees bend the other way. It doesn't bother him later in the movie. I mean. Obviously, he leaps, like, three stories up the staircase. <laughs> Dude, wh- ah, we haven't gotten to that scene yet. 
You're getting ahead of me. Yeah. So there's yeah, excellent scene. The you know the beast pacing in front of the fireplace, um, and getting this like sort of contrasting advice from Mrs. Potts and Lumiere. It's Dude, it's it's such. I mean, I don't. You know. impress her with your ripia wit. As a teenage boy, like I've lived this experience. <laughs> Right? Like, you've got these two sources of advice, the masculine and feminine advice that, like... Shower her with compliments. <laughs> but, be but be sincere. <laughs> <laughs> but above all, you must, must control, control your, your temper. temper. There's only one piece of advice that's common between the two. All the rest of them seen in contrast. And they are angry about it. Right? Looks like it's the one time you see them shout at the master of the house. Right, because they know that the one thing this is his foil. Screw this up. This is his foil. Right. Yeah. And then poor Coxworth, dude. And and you got to give him credit here. Like he really, you can tell. Like he's trying to listen. You know, like he knows that he's in territory he doesn't understand, and like he really does seem like he's like. He just can't help himself. Yeah. Right. He's I mean, yeah. He's he still is a monster. He 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 wants to, he wants to do the right thing. But it, this, well, I mean, what better persona, what character to embody the phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the flesh is weak. Boy, that's it. I mean, like, that's exactly who he is. Like, he is out of control. He's been out of control for 20 years. No. We'll get to the timeline, but it's not 20 years. Well. It's definitely 20 years. Okay. It's less than a year from the beginning of the movie, once we get to Bell, to oh, when the flower oh. is clearly going to end. Okay, sure. He's 20-plus years old. I'll give you that, and he's out of control his entire life. Okay. I still have a problem with the timeline. <laughs> we'll get there. And We're I'm almost there, folks. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so right. Cogsworth sidles into the kitchen, and where is she? Oh, well, yo, <laughs> circumstances being what they are. And, Dude, uh, yeah, right. It's it's the classic, I've got bad news and I don't. <laughs> right. It's like I the Archduke. I don't want to give it. Yeah, that's right. It's the Archduke. <laughs> He's proposed already. <laughs> it's like, well. You know, circumstances being what they are, uh, <laughs> she's not coming. What? Dude, and, uh, dude, he's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's just a piece of me that wishes that I was the beast. Cause he, dude, this scene when he when he cuts the corner on the stairs right. and jumps up to the balcony, it's like a thirty foot jump. <laughs> He's a monster. <laughs> it, I mean, I, I I wrote down the staircase leap is epic. Like that's in my notes. <laughs> yeah, and he he cuts the corner casually. <clears throat> right. <laughs> it's like and I ain't got time to turn a corner. <laughs> And he's banging on her bedroom door, right? And then the, the servants finally catch up because they didn't make the leap. And, uh, and he says, you have to come out. I thought I told you to come <laughs> down for dinner. I'm not hungry. <laughs> and, Golly. And he says, you, you come out of there or, or I'll break down the door. Uh, I may be wrong, sir, but uh, <laughs> that may not be the best way to win the young lady's affections. Try. <laughs> Will you... Come down to dinner. Say please. Please. No, thank you. <laughs> but she's being so difficult. <laughs> she can hear the entire conversation, right? Like, these whispers are not effective. <laughs> Belle hears everything. 
Although, just, I, I don't know. I mean, like, if she's smart, she's got six feet between her and that door, buddy. <laughs> because, man. My point is that they're not being quiet. That's true. Right? Like, there are times that he speaks to the servants louder than he speaks to her through the door, and she responds. It would give me great <laughs> pleasure. Right. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it is... It, his mannerisms and expressions, like, she's being so unreasonable. He's, like, waving his hands up. <laughs> Dude. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's so perfect. And then it, then it culminates with, well, then go ahead and starve! Dude, which if, once again, at least a weekly quote in my house, right? Like, you're dealing with children who will not eat. You just want to be like... Go ahead and start! Like, <laughs> which, of course, you know, you never follow through with, right? Like, <clears throat> you're always like, what about a little bit of cheese, honey? <laughs> Would you like a dry cracker? <laughs> you know, if if you just eat, like, three, three two, two more bites, you could have ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As much as you want. So ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. We dream about <laughs> we, we dream about being firm and decisive. And screaming at our children like we're a monster. <laughs> that part may not be a dream. <laughs> this is true. At least on, on this wrong day. <clears throat> yeah, right. If she doesn't eat with me, she doesn't eat at all. And then Cogsworth sets a sentry. Dude. The dependable, loyal, always trustworthy... <laughs> Lumiere. <laughs> you can count on me, Mon Capiton! <laughs> Which, of course, none of those statements are true. Last person I would have chosen. I would have put Chip in charge before Lumiere. That's true. Chip is cunning. It's really true. But, you know, Lumiere actually, in this case, does exactly what he's told. Most yeah, okay. basically, right. essentially, in the general vicinity, <laughs> you know... <laughs> All right, you know, I, I, I recant. <laughs> yeah, but at he, least he has the decency to, you know, <clears throat> spend his time with the feather duster behind a curtain. You know, that's very I discreet. mean, near, nearby. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I mean, like, you know, if he were a real cad, it would be in the middle of the hallway. But he gives it the decency of some privacy behind the curtain. To quote the French, touche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, I've been burned by you before. <laughs> That's a quote yes. I also <laughs> Dude, so good. So, so in the next scene, we get Belle sort of sneaking out of the room. Right. Because, you know, she's hungry. She is hungry. Yeah. That's a reality. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, before this confrontation in and the argument through the door. When he was still down in the kitchen getting advice, um, Mrs. Potts gave what I thought was very insightful and empathetic statement. She said, You have to understand, sir, she lost her father and her freedom in the same day. Yeah. Which even as a, a viewer, was like it, that was kind of hard to, to put together. Right. Yeah, it, it's easy in a movie to kind of dismiss mm-hmm. that stuff, and it helps to have... A little bit of dialogue, like, bring that in front of you and be like, whoa. You know, like, yeah, that is, that's heavy. Like, her whole world just got completely turned upside down. I I appreciate you making another Back to the Future reference. (laughs) 
<laughs> Heavy. I'm here for you, baby. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Please don't call me baby. <laughs> I don't know how many you've had to drink, but that that's a bridge too far. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point. I, <clears throat> we didn't talk at all about Mrs. Potts visits Belle, I, th- mm. I think, before she's giving yeah. advice to the right when she uh, beast. Uh, when she's talking to the wardrobe, she comes in to give her some tea for like 30 seconds, and then before she even takes a sip of tea, mm-hmm. they're out of there, which I thought like the, the cadence there was a little bit odd. But yes, Mrs. Potts does visit her in that wardrobe scene. and It might betray Mrs. <clears throat> Potts' true intention, which was just to gather intelligence about the state of Belle so she could right. better advise the Beast. Okay. Who would... not which of the servants would not be interested in this new girl that, like, showed up? Completely fair. Right. She'd be crazy not to. Yeah. But still, I'm just saying. It's not entirely altruistic. <laughs> you got me! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so Belle, yeah, she stinks out. Um, Lumiere, his interlude with the feather duster, <laughs> uh, is interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> Interlope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. It interrupted. He drops her. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, boom, on the floor. Not very nice, <laughs> Lemire. But, you know, I think she understands. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like she hit very hard. Circumstances being what they are. <laughs> <laughs> She's a feather duster. <laughs> anyway, so Belle makes her way to the kitchen, because she's hungry. And, um... You know, there's this conversation going on between Mrs. Potts and then the stove and Cogsworth. And, and Belle kind of sidles <laughs> through the door and, and Cogsworth, you know, greets her. And then Lumiere kind of comes rushing in <laughs> like, after on, the fact. On the backside. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like, hey, I was watching. <laughs> trust me. Right. And she says, well, I am hungry. And, and of course, Cogsworth, strict adherence to the rules. Glass of water. <laughs> no, no, no. That's only after they say, we're not going to let the child starve, right? Mrs. Potts <laughs> says, I'm not going to let the child starve. So, okay, glass of water, crust of bed, and off to bed. Crust of bread, and off to bed. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> of course, of course. <laughs> what, what's dinner without a little bit of music? <laughs> <laughs> music? <laughs> Dude. In, this, I mean, there's a reason this is the iconic scene for this movie, right? So, Be Our Guest is the under the sea of this movie. Definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. It's got it all. It's got it all. Right. You have, you have all of the animated characters, you know, just interacting here. You've you got just a fun song, right? <laughs> It, it does move the story a little bit more than Under the Sea did. Under the Sea was kind of semantically null, right? It's just It was just fun. It didn't do anything to move the story forward. Hmm. Be Our Guest does, right? It kind of builds this relationship between Belle and the servants, right? It, it kind of explains a little bit more of the backstory. Uh, so it, it moves the story a little bit, not much. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's fun. It's visually engaging, Oh, and the lyrics are so great. Yeah. I mean, like, if, if you're gonna, if I were gonna get a second place, I mean, I, I put Gaston at the top, the Gaston song at the top. But this is man, like, right on its heels. See, I've given a lot of thought about what, what the, the best song, right? I mean, maybe like my, my favorite, I could kind of pick, but 
but just like an objectively best song in this movie is, I can't do it. I can't pick the best song. I mean, like Beauty and the Beast would be would be like a natural choice. But it's the most beautiful. <clears throat> it is the most beautiful. But Be Our Guest is just like fun. Gaston is just amazing. <laughs> it's just so entertaining. <laughs> right? Um, something There is, is great as well. Yeah, man. I mean... It's it's such a nice little simple song. Right. You know? But Beauty and the Beast is also simple. Yeah. Right? True. And Yeah. Anyway, back to Be Our Guest. Yes. Um, I mean, so quotable as well. Right. Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask for the dishes. <laughs> we can sing. We can dance. After all, man, this is France. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, that's right. I mean, like, ugh. <sighs> it's just. It's so, and it's so, like, big. It is a big song. Like, you know? This is a Broadway song right here. <laughs> That's right. It's got <laughs> 50,000 extras. You know, you've got, the, you've got people jumping and flipping and the diving of the forks. And... Like, if this was a Broadway play, there would be people whose, like, only role in the entire play was to spin twice in the song and get off stage. <laughs> yeah, right. Just because you're trying this like this is big. Right. Right? Yeah, you're filling it up. Oh man. Yeah. But I mean just the lyrics are beautiful too. Like there's so much like wordplay and rhyming and alliteration and Right. And of yeah. course it introduces in a in a key part in the song, for ten years we've been rusting. Right. And so this is the illusion I've been making. <clears throat> to the timeline this entire time. So if we kind of do the <clears throat> the calculus here. <laughs> so on the, the rose will wilt on his 21st year. 10 years we've been rusting. We take 10 away from 21, and I think we're left with 11. So this 11-year-old kid, this fifth grader, right, <laughs> won't let an old woman into his castle on a cold night and, and has this curse placed upon him and everybody that works for him it's challenging to me you know i think one by the time a kid is in the fifth grade and you have a fifth grader and i, I don't, have i have a fifth grader right now you have some you have some expectations that that kid like is not a complete <clears throat> jerk i do have significant expectations of my fifth grader but i also have a non-typical fifth grader Okay. Okay, but this is intended to be a monarch, right? Is there anybody who should have a higher standard placed upon them than a monarch? Let me add a little bit of context to... So, my fifth grade daughter, Lydia, who's 11 right now, uh, when she was three years old, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and has had more responsibility placed on her than, than the normal child, than my other two children. She's my oldest, and, uh, you know, so she has to manage her blood sugar. Um, so, you know, every meal she has to take insulin uh, because her body doesn't produce it. Uh, she has to check her blood sugar. She has to change her, her insulin pump sites every three days. She has to, like, keep up with all this stuff for all of her living memory, pretty much. So she's incredibly responsible for a fifth grader. So that gives us kind of the context to, to my point of reference here. I also have a fourth grader who's not that far away who is not as responsible. <laughs> if I were to couch my words a little bit. <laughs> um, so, Lydia, my fifth grader, 
is not a little jerk. But if you expect mm-hmm. someone to be the ruler over an entire nation, you should have high expectations mm-hmm. for their moral behavior. If you don't, you're dooming yourself. So I, I will agree with that statement, but I will counter with, if I've learned anything as a parent, it's that my kids do not always live up to my expectations. And that's probably a nice way to say it. Yeah, of course. Which is what this exact kid does. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Like so, we have high high bar mm-hmm. for behavior because you're a prince and we need to get you fixed. Not in the cat way, but in like <laughs> Right, but you need, you need to be operating. I don't think anybody was thinking about the cat way of getting fixed. Well, it popped in my head. <laughs> right. So, but but this is my point, right? It's like <laughs> this kid needs to get on the level. I mean, the cat way of fixing would be counterproductive to a monarchy. I'm just saying, counterreproductive. <laughs> I'm out. We're done. Well, I mean, you know, there are monarchs who have taken the throne before they were 11. Like that's this is true. That's just a simple fact. But they usually have a regent. So, this is an answer. This is a this is a question. This is an answer without a question. Question that has not been answered um, in the story. Where are his parents? Right. He doesn't have any that we can see. There's nothing evident. Yeah. Um, there doesn't seem to be a caretaker or a regent, other than the castle staff. Right? Maybe Cogsworth and Lumiere, like or Mrs. Some Potts sort of... or whatever. Yeah. Right. Mrs. Potts is definitely not a regent, though. No, but but she could be a, a governess. Right. Yeah, governess. Or, you know, you assume she was the nanny, right? I right. mean, I could see her fitting that role as well. Um, but it's, a, yeah. it's an unanswered question. Uh, you know, where are his guardians? Yeah. It's an interesting question. What I'll say for sure is that <clears throat> the relationship that Lumiere and Cogsworth have with the prince does not strike to me as someone like a regent. No. Someone who is wielding the authoritative power. There's no authority over, over the beast. He is the right. authority. He always has been the authority. There's no indication in any of his interactions that he is submissive to anybody. Right. That he sees anybody else as having authority over him. And I, I mean, so I would speculate that at the, even, even at 10, you know, if you think about a world... If you think about a world where, like, getting married and having children at 14 was, like, you know, a fairly regular occurrence, hmm. then the idea of having somebody who's 10... 11. Or 11, you know, you decide, like, well, you know what, really, maybe he's old enough because we can't pick a regent or whatever. You know, like, we don't have we don't have the structures hmm. in place to make that happen. I could see that happening. Like, I don't see that as being absurd. It's not uh, ideal. I have a, a really hard time reconciling that with my worldview, given my experiences, given the world that, that I live in today. Right? I cannot see an 11-year-old making ruling decisions. Right? It just, well, I, I, mean, I can't see it. Uh, <laughs> now, I also can't see a world where, where people get married at 14. Right? I know that that did exist in the past. Right. Um, so, I don't know, I can't suspend my disbelief enough 
to to get to to that point, so I can't get to the point of an eleven year old sovereign. Yeah, yeah, it's so far away. I mean, you know, my memory is, you know, I've I've read a fair bit about the, um, you know, the succession following Henry VIII. I think <laughs> I think that's the right. What a disaster! Yeah, it's kind of like that lady who backed into a fan. <laughs> But I think Edward, maybe Edward the first or Edward the second. I think he's like eight or nine. Yeah, but he had a region when he's on the throne. I think he still had the authority to make decisions. Now he doesn't last very long on the throne, you know. But I think that he may he may have had like high advisors. But in the end, he was the authority for decision making, which you know may have been why he didn't last very long. I don't know, you know. He's- I mean, I, I don't think that's a very far leap. I mean, I'd say that's. A shorter leap than the beast made on that stairwell. Oh! (laughs) I see what you did there. Yes. We're, man, we're way off. We're we're having a good time is what we're doing. We're in la-la land. So, Jake, uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to our friends at HammerTech about some of our challenges in post-production. Uh, after we record our podcasts. You know, we have so much fun, you know, talking about princesses, consuming our favorite pints. And once we stop the the microphone, we've got a whole bunch more work to do that's a lot less fun. So our buddies at HammerTech uh, actually recommended a, an AI tool that helps cut down the audio, the audio editing time for us. So instead of it taking weeks uh, for a a turnaround, we can actually uh, get the editing done in mere minutes. That's amazing. Yeah. So we've been using it uh, in this episode for Beauty Beauty and the Beast, and it's really made a difference for us. This is really the magic of of what HammerTech brings to the table. Uh, They specialize in technology, and as you explain your challenges to them, they can recommend bring and build technology to help solve those challenges for you. And so our friends at HammerTech are, are bringing a special offer to our listeners. They're going to offer a free one hour tech consultation for any business. Uh, all you have to do is reach out and mention pints and princesses. So just shoot them an email at info at hammertech.com. And remember, there's no me in HammerTech. It's H A M M R T E C H dot com. So there was this dinner. Where, <laughs> That's right, where they sang. Where they sang, and Belle actually didn't eat anything, but she tried the gray stuff. She did. She did stick her finger in the gray stuff, and it was delicious. Don't believe me? <laughs> Ask the dishes, right? But yeah, right. And then they're like, "Okay, off to bed." Yeah, Which, well, dude, what so, a hilarious transition for Cogsworth, it, right? It kind of so the the song says, um, "Course by course, one by one, until you say enough, I'm done. Then off to sleep is, or we'll sing you to sleep as you digest." And like that, that kind of goes into the the climactic end of the the song, and like kind of sets up like, "Oh yeah, you know, bed after this." And so Cogsworth, yeah, obviously thinks like, "Hey." Off to bed. So I can't possibly sleep now. I've never been in an enchanted castle before. Enchanted? Who said anything about enchanted? You told him. <laughs> yeah, it was you, wasn't it? 
<laughs> I, I kind of figured it out by myself. <laughs> Dude, it's, yeah, what a great line. It's just, it's just classic. Right, and so then you know, there's the uh, the solicitation for a tour. Right, there's the yeah, there's... dude, and I mean, Belle playing. She she's just so good. I mean, you watched her do it to Gaston when he was you know like pushing himself in, you know, like playing off of his character traits, and then she just does it again to Cogsworth. Right, like totally plays into his ego. It's like, well, maybe you could show me around. I'm sure you know everything about the castle. He's like, <laughs> I mean. Nobody knows more about the castle than me. Why, yes, I do. <laughs> and then he's given the most boring castle tour. Oh, now, hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, like... If it's that... not Baroque, don't fix it. That's a great joke. It, it, it is a great... That's a great joke. It's a great play on words. It is. And I, every time, I look, I look for it, I enjoy it. Yes. But it's the most boring castle tour you could think of it's just totally typical of like what a modern person gets at a museum what a it's what a major domo would do right i mean that, which is what cogsworth is it's exactly what you'd expect it's in character and it's boring and and bell's bored but another just great tidbit from this tour is the suits of armor <laughs> You know, as they walk by, each one of them turns its head and just follows Belle down the corridor. Uh, in typical cartoon fashion, right? The Auga. Right. <laughs> as you were. <laughs> and they all snap back to attention. <laughs> and uh, then she starts up the staircase, which looks like the same staircase that leads to her room, but apparently it's the one to the West Wing. I guess she's in the East Wing, maybe. Maybe yeah. they're symmetric. Could be. It could be a symmetrical castle. All castles should be symmetrical. They should be, with a keep in the center. That's right. To keep us safe. I always did this in Civilization. I never played Civilization. I did Age of Empires. Yeah. And uh, Starcraft, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Civilization, there's two things you got to know. Get chariots, build your castle symmetrically. If you do that, you'll win. Hmm. Really, just the chariots. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched them defeat tanks. Yeah. not an exaggeration literal outcome chariots beat tanks yeah except in the real world so for all of you aspiring despots out there um invest in tanks well it's just because tanks are the modern chariots okay i mean yes and (laughs) (laughs) but back to the film right um we were Right. So oh, she's West Wing. About the West Wing. Right. She starts up the the steps and they they intercede in her way physically. These six inch tall <laughs> household objects. She her. dutifully obliges by right. stopping. And oh, there's nothing up there. This is nothing in the West Wing of interest at all. Oh, so that's, that's the West what... Wing. Way to go! <laughs> Can't remember who slaps who, but right. and uh, so <clears throat> yes, yeah, she's expresses great interest in making it to the West Wing. But they say, well, perhaps we go look at the gardens or the the, the library. The library? Oh, you have a library. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, well, Belle yeah. is so good. It's, it's huge. Lots of books. Scores of books. <laughs> right. And they march off Winnie and the Pooh style. <laughs> Winnie and the Pooh style. <laughs> and she starts to follow. And I, I, I mean, I truly think she she was interested and tempted 
She is interested in the library. There's and, no and doubt she, about it. And she was tempted to follow and just go see the library. But then they make it too easy. And she just breaks off and heads up the steps. Oh, man. Dude, which, like, what an interesting picture. You know, the difference between the West Wing and the rest of the castle is just fascinating. Well, it's obvious where the beast lives. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about that. Everything is destroyed. Everything is torn up. It's dirty. It's dusty. Obviously, no servants go there. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's an interesting point, you know, that, like, this isn't just off-limits to Bell. It's clearly off-limits to basically everyone. And, you know, you kind of pick up on that a little bit, you know, later on when they go in there. You can tell that they're behaving timidly. Mm-hmm. It's when the castle's under attack. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, you know, counts as an emergency, probably. You know. I concur. <laughs> Do you concur? I concur. <laughs> Why didn't I concur? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, that's a reference to Catch Me If You Can. Great flick. Amazing. Maybe one day... We can do an episode on Catch Me If You Can. You have to get a long way down the list. <laughs> There's a lot of kids' movies to do first. <laughs> yes. But I do enjoy that movie. Right. So we've got, yes, yeah, so we've got Belle for the first time kind of seeing, and there's this really good scene, you know, in the opening, you see the beast destroy the self-portrait of him as a human. It's a portrait. I don't know if it's a self-portrait. Oh, good point. Almost certainly not a self-portrait. Just mm-hmm. a portrait of him as a human. And, like, there's, like, this scene of, like, the claw ripping it. Mm-hmm. And then you see Belle, like, she kind of, like, she, she starts to put it back together to, like, to see what his face looks like, but stops. Because she gets what? interrupted. She doesn't. She just stops and turns to the rose. Like, nothing nothing stops her. She just oh, doesn't. Oh, you're right. She's, she's distracted by the rose. Yeah. So, which I, I think this is significant because she never sees what he looks like before she falls in love. So there's nothing superficial, nothing vain. It's him and his character that she loves. Yeah. Definite, definitely a primary theme of the original fairy tales, right? Like that's, that's like foundational bedrock of the whole story is that, you know, she is not attracted to him for any reason because of his charms, but strictly because of his character and virtue. Definitely. Which, there's not a lot of character and virtue to be attracted <laughs> to in this movie. You know, not in the beginning. <clears throat> yeah, it, has, it takes a long time to sort of reveal itself. We're about to have the turning point. And it, it, it's, it really does start with an act of sacrifice by the beast. Huh. So, let's introduce this. She, she turns away from the portrait, sees the rose, mm. under the glass, what would you call that? Glass. Looks like a vacuum bell to me, <laughs> yeah. but I'm a chemist. So yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. I was thinking bell something. But yeah, vacuum bell is exactly what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so she, she removes that, and she, she's about to touch it, and the beast comes in from the balcony. I guess he was mm-hmm. out prowling. On the roof. Which is what a beast would do. And uh, and he, he comes in, he's surprised she's there, and he leaps over all beast-like, and 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 with care places the vac- yeah this like strangely gentle motion. He says, "What are you doing here? Could you realize what you have done?" Right. And she's like, well, "No, obviously not." I'm like, what? It's like just, I don't know. There's a floating rose here, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what do you want me to say about it? Sorry, I was just curious. <clears throat> 
And he gets he gets mad. He really spins up quick, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately, you know, it's an interesting point. He says, "Get out!" And that's what she does. She all the way out. <laughs> but He's I mean, like, he he is destroying things, right? Like right. She he just starts breaking stuff. And and yeah, she's scared. And I mean, I get it. Right, and I mean, like you can you can make a little argument that like did she break her promise or did she do what she what he told her to do? Like, there's like a uh, well, I mean, on her way out, she tells the servants, "Promise or no promise, I can't stay here any longer." Right, but I'm just saying, like he sort of gives her permission. It's a okay. subtle interpretive like th- move. This reminds me of a a legal case <laughs> because <laughs> of course it does because I'm a scholar of such things. <laughs> Uh, not really. I'm a pro bono lawyer <laughs> in my free time. Yes, please give me more wine. We've not had that spirit here since 1969. Um, man, we are doing so many copyright violations today. <laughs> anyway, so there was this uh, this legal case where um, I cannot remember that, but basically, the lack of an Oxford comma cost somebody like five million dollars. And because uh, it, it it said, I cannot think of the, what it was about now, but it was something like you couldn't do this, this, or that. Um, but there were, there was no like Oxford comma, and so it's like, what are the groupings, right? And it was like ambiguous, and so because of this ambiguity, they decided that the law was not clear enough to be enforced in this situation, and that's why. Shenanigans. <laughs> That's why lawyers get paid a lot. Right there. <laughs> so, his lack of an Oxford comma <laughs> allowed her to leave. Yeah, right. So she runs out. She gets on Philippe. She's out. Which at this point... Yeah. Like, where's Philippe been? Did they put him in the stable? They've been taking care of him? Of course. I guess it's only been one day. Except that, you know... It's the same day. And now it's snowing. Yeah. Was it... I guess it wasn't snowing when she got there. I don't know. I don't. It definitely wasn't snowing when. Maybe it was just starting to snow. It wasn't snowing when Maurice got no, there. No, it was raining. But it but, might... but significant time passed, like more than a day between Maurice getting there and Bell getting there. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like Bell gets there, and she leaves same the night. Same night. Yeah. When she gets there, there's definitely not snow on the ground. But by the time she leaves, there's snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. And and we have wolves again, right? We have this scary flight into the woods. And then, like, the wolves. You know what I noticed about these wolves? They're constantly licking their lips. Mm-hmm. The entire, like, this whole scene, every every image of them, like, at least one of them's licking his lips. They're ravenous. That's all there is to it. They're ravenous wolves. I think it's a really, um, this, is a, this is another set of images that juxtapose with the beast. Right? Like, you have the Gaston on one side... And then you have the wolves on the other that you get to compare the beast against. Because he is a lot... I mean, like, there's a lot of wolf in the way that the beast behaves. Even though, I mean, like, I think your amalgam of of animals is right. I feel like wolf shows up more strongly than the others. Like, I, you know, like, particularly in the way that he moves, the shape well, of certainly. his legs. I mean, I mean, with his lower body being of wolves his tail well yeah. like the way the way that he like stands indoor like when you see him pacing mm-hmm. like the the profile that he strikes is not very much bear it's not very much buffalo 
No. I mean, but his posture is influenced by his lower body, which is wolf. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm just saying that I think it provides yeah. a good juxtaposition. Yeah, right. You know, like, and so when you see him now, well, you know, so Belle goes out there. She's getting chased by the wolves. Right. And you, for a second, you think she's going to get away, right? She, she <laughs> runs across the, the river and breaks through the ice, and, and the wolves fall through the ice. But Philippe, God love Philippe. Dude, he's a champ. Right? He, he, he struggles, and he gets out on the other side. You think the wolves are going to fall in through the ice, and, and they're going to get away. But they don't. The wolves catch up, and, and they, I don't know, somehow Philippe's reins get wrapped around a branch yeah. overhead. Right. And well, there's, yeah, there's somehow she gets thrown. Yeah. And her hair breaks loose. Yeah. You know, like her hair's flapping it's in the like wind. It's like the only now. time you see her hair down in the whole movie. Might be true. Certainly it's it's the most wild her hair gets. Yeah. And she's like trying to fight these wolves off with a stick. But I mean like... It doesn't work and they grab her cloak and pull her to the ground. Right. And, and they grab the stick and take that away. Right. And, and man, it's about to get real. It's ugly. When the beast shows up. <laughs> Such a, he's such a beast. He's such <laughs> a beast. Yeah, he's so cool. Like, you know, yeah, jumps in there. But it's not an unrealistic fight. He doesn't just like come in and kick everybody's butt. Yeah, right. right? Oh, yeah. He, he takes a lot of damage. Right. right. He's getting chewed on. He's got a lot of aggro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it has like all these wolves jumping on him, but he's just like throwing them off and he's like yeah he's got like these i don't know yeah. he and he moves so animalistically like a like a tiger or something you know or, like or a wolf well w- wolf I, bear buffalo I, lion i think pig. it's very cat like <laughs> in this case you know i don't know maybe i'm wrong but yeah i mean epic battle scene right eventually the wolves run off right they they bug out and go home to quote Dude. top gun and and the the roaring scene where he roars at them right. and he has like his giant massive jaws. Yeah, I mean it's intimidating. Dude, it's so awesome. As a specimen, <laughs> true, he's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. And every last inch of him's covered in hair. That we know for a fact. But uh, so wolves bug out and go home. He collapses in the snow, and Belle for for She's a, ready to run off. For a second she's about to mount Philippe and run. She looks back. And sighs. And, and then, that sigh says so much. This is one of two times when you say, holy crap, Belle must be a beast herself. Because <laughs> somehow she gets the beast onto the back of Philippe. <laughs> don't ask me how. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Uh, I, I've got images of maybe her like getting Philippe to squat down and like you know, maybe pulling a bit of him over. And then like Philippe stands up or I don't know. I'm a fit, grown man. <laughs> You asked me to pile 500-pound, 9-foot-tall, bare-shouldered beast onto the back of Philippe? Uh, <laughs> a draft horse? <laughs> it's like, with what crane? There's no amount of seesaw that can make this happen. <laughs> that's, that's right. I need 10 guys and a forklift. <laughs> but, you know, I'll suspend disbelief here. So she piles beast onto this... And, dude, I think that this next scene, this scene where Belle is tending to the beast, like, this is the pivotal scene. Everything hinges right. on this so, moment. So he makes the sacrifice to go after her and save her because he knows it's dangerous out there. Right. 
and she sees that, and she turns, right? So, you know, my first watch through it, I thought it was in this scene that her tenderness to him was the turning point. But after another watch through, I think it was her response to his act of bravery. And, but the note I made from this scene was, Belle doesn't take any crap from the beast. Dude, and it's so, and it's so important because you look at everybody else. Mm-hmm. Everybody else in the room, like, he's mad, he's hurt, he's licking his arm, and everybody else is like, I'm not touching that. <laughs> stay away from that guy. No. He's a monster, and he's in a terrible mood. Right, but, like, Belle is just, like, she is right in there. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah, that's... And, and it is, it is. It's characteristic of her. Like, this is part of what makes her an amazing character. So I love that Mrs. Potts made the hot water that she then dunked the rag in and was going to go treat the wound. And and he's looking, and she says, don't do that, and she's going to wipe it with the, the rag. And and he's not holding still, and so, you know, it. You know she bumps him, and he That hurts! <laughs> well, it wouldn't hurt so much if you would sit still. Well, it wouldn't have gotten hurt if you hadn't run away. I wouldn't have run away if you hadn't gotten so angry. I wouldn't have gotten angry if you hadn't gone to the West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) They just go tit for tat, Dude, yeah. And and I mean, like, this is it. Like, this exchange, it determines the whole rest of the movie. And somehow she comes out on top of it, right? Right. And just doesn't take his crap. Well, what does she say? She says exactly what Lumiere and Mrs. Potts say. Well, if you learn to control your temperature, your temper. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And he's like, he, he can't oh, yeah. counteract it. And I mean, you know, it, in typical fashion of um, individuals of her character, it's a complete non sequitur, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, if you're trying to follow a lo- logical argument, like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, yeah, if we're working backwards on the chronology, like, wait, this... No, it's like, I win. But then yeah. she's like, well, if you learn to control your temper, your temper and it's like... Uh, uh, That's true, but it's not... Is not, that relevant? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But then she counterpoints it. This like moment of concession. Thank you for saving my life. And it just like everything melts, right? right? We had the heart of stone and and it's like, ooh, it's a Right. She won, but then she conceded the obvious point. It's just like everything changes. Everything. And then we, we cut back to the tavern, don't we? Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. They have that moment of softness, and then it zooms out, and now we're in the tavern with Gaston and the asylum keeper. Dude, and this guy looks like an <laughs> asylum keeper. You want to talk about an evil dude? I mean, Gaston's definitely a bad guy, but this dude is pure dag-nasty evil. He, uh, brief, brief tangent recently read a book about the history of pharmaceuticals. And do you know why we don't have insane asylums anymore? How could I possibly know that? Because we have pharmaceuticals that can treat previously untreatable mental illnesses. We have antipsychotic drugs that can treat things like schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder and bipolar disorder and like these things. Where before these were like, ah, there's something broken in their brain and they can't operate in society, so let's kind of Asylum, give them asylum, give them protection mm-hmm. here in this hospital. Huh. And once we could treat that, we didn't need them. I didn't know that either. Like, 
was a big epiphany moment for me. Yeah, that's interesting. But I guess they, I mean, those th- those places do still exist, don't they? I mean, we still have places that people can go to get mental health treatment, yes. But they're usually not residential facilities. Unless it's for drug addiction. But even then, it's short term. Like, mental asylums were like, you drop, you know, Cousin Mo off here, and you... Lives and here forever. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just trying to think about, like, how recent must those be? Cause... Like, since the 1950s. Well, but, I mean, what about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I don't know when did that come out. 70s. It's Jack okay. Nicholson. I mean, but when was it based? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know the exact timeline, but it, it was certainly, like, last century. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so the name of this asylum, right... <laughs> Asylum de Lunes. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. Perfectly right. descriptive. And LeFou and Gaston, they, they reveal their plan. Right. Gaston explains that... <clears throat> well, actually, you know what? I think the way that they do it in the movie is they have Crypt Keeper, like, kind of represent to the... So so if I understand correctly... No, no, well, he says, I don't usually leave the asylum in the middle of the night. But you said you'd make it worth my while. <laughs> That's right, and then they throw a bag yeah. of money Gaston the sets a, a bag of gold there on the table, and he kind of weighs it, you know, as they do. Because <laughs> you can... I, I can always measure the amount of money in my hand based on weight. Well, you come from a, you know, decrepit era of paper money where it's, yeah. you know, like, not used... Fiat fuller. That's right. I'm a fiat fool. Gold standard. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, hmm, yeah. Feels right, looks right, it's right. You bite the coin, too, to make sure it leaves a teeth imprint? Something like that. Yeah. I would totally do that. If you had any gold coins. (laughs) If I had any gold (laughs) coins at all. Which I don't. I don't have any gold coins. Don't come to his house. Don't come to my house. <laughs> Unless you want lentils, because that's what I do. <laughs> I can attest to this fact. Jake has lots of lentils. So, yeah, right. But, like, basically they propose the plan, and he, like, pretends to not be interested, and then he's like, I love it. He says, quote, that is despicable. I love it. <laughs> yeah, what a monster. So the plan, which you glazed over, was he was going to blackmail Belle into marrying him, or he was going to commit her father to the Asylum de Lunes. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, you know, definitely persecuting crackpots. <laughs> Harmless crackpots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, which, I mean, <clears throat> I love LeFou poking fun at Gaston. <laughs> Turned him down flat. <laughs> LeFou is my favorite character. He's oh, perfect. So awesome. He's the perfect foil to the foil. Yeah, that's right. He's foil squared. Because he's little and Gaston is big. <laughs> he's goofy and Gaston is serious. Yeah. It's Gaston money. is evil. He is too. Yeah, right. He's evil to the evil. Right. But, but still bad in his it's own still sense. Bad. Like yeah. it's. He's clearly not out to help Belle or yeah. anybody else. He's he's not looking out for anybody's well-being, except numero uno. Which he thinks Gaston is his ticket. Right. But he's still having fun. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't like Gaston. He just knows that Gaston is the easiest way to get what he wants and to keep other people out of his way, I expect. 
man, what does it say that I, I like him? <laughs> what does that say about me? Uh, you know, he is kind of an underdog. He has an underdog. Yeah, I mean, that's character. true. Everybody loves an underdog. Yeah, there we go. Everybody loves an underdog. I'm a good person. Everybody <laughs> loves an underdog. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the end, like, can you can you really, like, hold LeFou accountable? I don't know. Yes. You can hold people accountable for their actions, especially when they're wrong, especially when they're supporting a leader who was very wrong. Yes. But he's so little. <laughs> Prejudiced. <laughs> Look at him. I mean, come on. Some... He must be you a know. South Pole elf. <laughs> we cut back to the castle, and... No, we set off to Maurice. Maurice is getting his stuff pulled together. He's going to go off. He goes off, and Nafu gets stuck in front of the cottage and says, That's right. You stay here until they come back. That's right, because they just barely miss Maurice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we're back at the castle, and um, and the beast is, is wanting to do something nice for Belle. And he's asking for advice from Cogsworth. <laughs> Cogsworth. And, and, I, and I wrote down this quote because it's it's just perfect. <laughs> Too good. He said, you know, what, what can I what can I do for her? And Cogsworth says, well, you know, you do the, the typical chocolates, flowers, promises you don't intend to keep. <laughs> love it. I love that line. <laughs> uh, and then then we have this, this scene where they're eating porridge together. Right? That's right. And, yes. and first of all, like, Mrs. Potts pours a ton of milk onto this porridge. Like, it's now soup. Right. But moving on. Uh, you know, Belle's then eating it with a spoon, and she looks over at the beast, and he's like, yeah, <laughs> down in the dish like a dog. And uh, then, like, somebody gives him the spoon, and he's like, he's like dribbling it just around the room above. It's just great. It's like he's never seen one before. He's like, oh, what do I do with this thing? And then finally, there's the compromise of drinking out of the bowl, which... Right. For some reason, works. Yeah. Which, you know, hey, who am I to judge? And then they have the scene in the courtyard in the snow where we have the song, Something There. Yeah. Which, very There's fun something song. Something there that wasn't there before. So, you know, voiceover is tricky, right? Like, doing voiceovers in a movie can seem really corny, right? Uh, and to do it well takes finesse. And they, they, I think they got it right here. Dude, they crush it. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they kind of have this flirtatious scene in the courtyard, and they're feeding birds, and they're throwing snowballs, and, yeah, I mean, the, the song is voiced over. Only singing part for the Beast in the whole movie. That's true. He's got, like, four lines. Right. <laughs> she looked this way. I thought I saw. And when we touched. She didn't shudder at my... My paw! <laughs> it's like, you go super loud right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, yeah, the... And then, then you have the servants that kind of like jump in uh, as they're watching through the window, and you know, there's something there that wasn't there before. And then something right. in the movie that's not on the soundtrack—that's the one I referenced before—is in the movie. Chip is like, "What? What's there? I don't understand." And he like kind of keeps like piping up in between the lines of the song, like, yeah. "What's going on?" And then eventually, at the very end, Mrs. Potts says, "I'll tell you when you're older." Dude, you know, I mean, this is this is a real experience that just, I still sometimes muse about this. Like, I remember as a kid, like, not getting it. Like, I didn't get it. 
I don't it's, understand what's going on. This is confusing. And as an adult, it's like he, so obvious right. that it's. <laughs> but but how do you explain it? Right. And, well, and like, like, and how do you change? Like, how do you figure it out? I don't even know. Like, I I guess you just. There's something that happens when you're like 14 you know, or 15. I don't know. For me, I watched enough TV and movies. And, you know. Dude, I watched a lot of rom cons as a seven year old and, like, still <laughs> didn't get it. Yeah. Hmm. You know? But then somehow as a teenager, right. like. So, what what happens between the age of seven and 14? I guess weird parts of my brain turn on. Hormones. And what yeah. do hormones do? They send signals to other parts of your body that tell them to do stuff. Is my brain like how how I'm do not I a, I'm not a biologist. I don't know what parts of your body are receiving signals from the hormones. I'm not a lawyer either, even though we kind of referenced that earlier. Listen, just don't bring up enzymes, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh inside joke. Maybe Rebecca will get that one. <laughs> my point here is, is that like I see like I don't understand what the cognitive change is that suddenly like there's a thousand signals that as an adult you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, right? Like there's something going on between these two that's like, you know, like chemistry, lightning bolts, whatever you want to call it. Like there's something, like there's energy here where like as a six-year-old it's like, ah, I don't know. Like they're throwing snowballs. <laughs> that looks fun. Can I go join them? <laughs> yeah, right. No, they need, they need time together. Like, They're still together. I'll just be there, too. Yeah, I just want to throw <laughs> snowballs. Like, what's the big deal, man? It's, yeah, it's it's bizarre. What's a third wheel? Like, aren't more wheels better? That's what makes tricycles so much better than bicycles. You don't fall over. Exactly. Well, listeners, this concludes part two of our episode on Beauty and the Beast. Tune in next time for the third wheel of this episode as we conclude our telling of Beauty and the Beast. Au revoir.